And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are a few young politicians in Washington who have generated more buzz in a short period of time than Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, a, a decorated Iraq war a veteran who won a improbable primary campaign against an incumbent Democrat to go to Congress uh, in 2014, and who lately has been part of a group of maverick young members of Congress who have been uh, petitioning for change in leadership uh, in the House. The story of his military service and his march to public office is a is a compelling one, and so uh, I wanted to sit down with him when he passed through Chicago the other day. Seth Moulton, great to be with you. David, thank you for having me. It's an honor um, to be here. So I can't remember the name of the show back in the 80s that launched uh, uh, Michael J. Fox, where he played the conservative kid to the liberal parents who uh, were shocked and dismayed that their son was growing up as a a conservative. I, I know you didn't grow up as a conservative, but there's a little of that in your family, isn't there? Well, I mean, I think uh, like most American families, we have some different political <laughs> perspectives around the dinner table. But your folks were uh, in the 60s. They were out on the streets protesting the Vietnam War. It's fair to say they came, that, that they came from uh, the sort of progressive end of that generation, which was very much uh, anti-war and, and kind of anti-establishment. That's right. I mean, I think my mom would look at my dad and say he was a bit conservative for her, but they both went to Brown in the late 60s. I mean, they were uh, adamantly against the Vietnam War, and they couldn't understand why I would have any interest in the military whatsoever when I said that I wanted to serve. Yeah, well, we it, it, and it was a, a surprise to them when you decided, and probably to a lot of friends, you, you grew up in a, 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 I would say, a privileged um uh, Situation, and you you went to uh... by many American standards. I mean, it was a small town. I was far from the richest kid, but I wasn't the poorest kid either. It was it's a nice town. We talked about nice this town. before. It was a Marblehead, Mass. My sister lived there uh, for a while. Beautiful. Your sister lived with the water view. I didn't grow up with the water view, but yeah. uh, but, but she it's rented. A nice, it's a, <laughs> yeah. It's a you know look. It's a it's a it's a perfectly nice town. Um, but you went to Andover. Town. I mean, I don't. I'm not trying to make yeah. you out to. All I'm saying is I'm a member of Congress, still paying his college loans. So yes. the bottom line is I got tremendous opportunities, uh, and I'm I think a product of the American dream. You right. Know, I I didn't grow up fabulously wealthy. I didn't have a trust fund or anything like that. Uh, I didn't have family connections to politics. I think the first congressman that my parents met uh, is me. But I was able to run for office and earn people's votes. And now I'm a member of Congress uh, in my 30s and trying to serve the country again. No, understood. And my my point is this. Um, You went to Andover. You went to Harvard. Um, These were not sort of the wellspring of people who uh, then volunteered uh, for military service. I mean, that's one of the issues we have in our country. Is no, but that, they, they used to be. Yes. They used to be. It used to be that, I mean, in World War One, they dug trench lines on the lawn at Andover so uh, the kids could practice, uh, could practice trench warfare. And they sent a small detachment 
of Andover kids who were too young to be allowed to be soldiers, but they were ambulance drivers, and they went over to France with a faculty member, uh, with a teacher. And but they weren't drawing trench lines there when you were at Andover. But no. I mean, that's the thing, is that I grew up in a generation where there were, you know, a lot of my parents, uh, fr- parents in our, um, of our friends, uh, had been opposed to the Vietnam War, or some of them even served in the military, but essentially did so to avoid having to go uh, to Vietnam. Of course, there were some who were proud to serve there too, but there was this general perception, I think, growing up, that the military was not a place where you uh, saw, uh, where you went to have a successful career, shall we say. So talk about um, your decision to enter the military and your experience at, at Harvard, uh, which is where I guess you came to the conclusion. It wasn't like you were in high school saying, I want to get through college so I can enlist. Something happened when you were at Harvard that, turned you in that direction? You know, my high school's motto is non sibi, which is Latin for not for self. So it's a school that talks a lot about service. But it was at Harvard where I think I was really influenced by one person in particular, and that was the minister in the college church, the Reverend Professor Peter J. Gomes, who was sort of a contradiction in terms. I mean, he uh, an American Baptist minister, an African-American, uh, but also gay. He came out of the closet, and he was one of the most popular preachers in America, but also this real guidepost for the university, someone that people of all faiths would turn to during times of moral crisis. And he became a very close mentor to me. He's, he's someone you, that you I... You met him playing the organ. <laughs> Is that right? I, 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 I did. And, and so I was just sort of involved in music at the church. And I, and I went not out, out of a religious obligation to go to church every Sunday, but because I felt like listening to him, listening to him made me a better person. And I think that it's good to have some, some moral guideposts when you're in college. Uh, God knows I wasn't the perfect college kid and sometimes got myself into trouble. I don't think you uh, want to be but, the perfect college kid. Well, I, I, I certainly enjoyed not being the perfect college kid. But <laughs> Nobody uh, likes the perfect college kid. <laughs> not that I would know that from experience, but that's what, I, that's what I believe. Having a little moral correction at the end of the week uh, on <laughs> Sunday morning was sometimes a good thing after a long Saturday night. I was getting up on Sunday morning. That, that's the hard part. That was sometimes challenging, yeah. yes. But... He it was a big influence on my life, and he talked a lot about how, you know, you can, you can go to Harvard and have all this opportunity, and you can believe in service. And in fact, you can even do things to support other people who serve, but you really ought to go out yourself and find a way to give back. And I looked at my life, and I said, you know, I've really never done all that much to serve. I've certainly never done anything to serve the country. And so I looked at different options. I looked at options that my parents would have preferred, like serving in the Peace Corps or teaching overseas. But at the end of the day, I had so much respect for these 18, 19-year-old kids who put their lives on the line for our country that I decided, you know what, if they're willing to do that, then I should do it too. Well, and a lot, and, and you know, to my point before, many of them uh, come from rural America. Many of them come from inner-city communities. Uh, the, uh, there's so much of the country that is sort of insulated from that service uh, so you really crossed a line there in some ways, uh, and an important one, I think. I mean, I personally believe that there should be uh, national service of some kind. Oh, I do too. And, I do too. Uh, but 
I'm but, a big advocate for it in, in Congress. But you're right that a lot of my friends just didn't understand it. Well, not just your friends. Your mother said uh, there was no career choice he could have made that would have made me more unhappy except if he had chosen a life of crime. Yes, my mother has a way with words. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, is that, was, that a, was that a fear about what might happen to you, or was that a lingering uh, feelings from her years as a, as a Vietnam War dissenter? Well, I think it was both. I think every parent has a healthy concern if a son or daughter wants to go into the military, of yeah. course. Uh, this was before the war, though. I no, mean, I understand. I, I wanted to ask to you about that. A lot of, you know, a lot of folks of your generation said 9-11 happened, and I felt the call to serve. You actually made this decision. It was in 2001, I guess, but it was before those planes hit the tower and, and uh, Pennsylvania. And, That's and right. In fact, I remember sitting down with Reverend Gomes in his office uh, in the spring of 2001, and he said to me, you know, Seth, I don't love the fact that you've chosen the Marines as your way to serve, but I think you're making the decision for the right reasons. I had given him all my justifications for why this is what I wanted to do. And, and then he added at the end, he said, you know, I'm just glad there's not a war going on because you'd probably get yourself killed. And the next five years over the course of my four deployments were pretty tough for him because I think he remembered those words. And, of course, a few months after that discussion, we found ourselves in a war. Yeah. What what did you um what did you think when you heard the news about those attacks? Did you know uh that that would change your life in a in a significant way? I did, but I felt proud that I had made the decision to serve at a time when Americans were lining up outside of recruiting stations because the attacks had proven to them that serving in the military is a good thing. I was proud of the fact that I didn't need September 11th uh to know that that, that I should serve the country. And, you know, I also had a lot of friends who went to New York after Harvard, uh, people who went to work on Wall Street or for big firms, and they actually witnessed these attacks firsthand. I was up literally on a railroad track crew in the White Mountains of New Hampshire when the attack happened, uh, about as far away from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan as you could get. And yet my friends were there, witnessed it firsthand, but then couldn't do anything about it. I was the one person in a position to actually do something about it, to fight back. And some of my friends who didn't understand my decision to serve at all, in fact, there was a friend, a really good friend in college who uh, used to get breakfast with me almost every day, and we would have political debates. He was a little more conservative than I am. Uh, but the only time that he got angry at me, and I mean furious, I mean slammed his tray down and said, that is Stupid. He used a few more colorful terms um, and walked it's out. A podcast, so you know. He said, yeah. "That's fucking stupid." Mm-hmm. And he was talking about my decision to 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 serve in the Marines. He just thought I was wasting wasting my life. And after September 11th, uh, he signed up for the army. Hmm. And I think the point is that look, we were friends because we share a lot of values, and he ultimately decided to serve for the same reasons. But when you're in an environment where you just don't know anybody who makes this choice, it becomes a hard thing to do. And after he saw me uh, start my time in the Marines and, and enjoy it and be proud of it, it made it a lot more accessible decision for him to serve in the Army. Why did you choose the Marines? You know, I think most people choose the Marines because they have an uncle who's a Marine or a father or something like that, or other people have some special connection to the Army or the Navy. I really didn't have any of that. 
Uh, and so I, I talked to a lot of people and it was an army lieutenant colonel who'd done just about everything you could want to do in the army. He was in the Rangers. He was in the special forces. He was, uh, in some of the conflicts in the 1980s, like down in Panama. And, uh, and yet he said he just had such undying respect for the Marine Corps that, uh, that I should sign up to be a Marine. So I took his advice. And you ended up um, among the first to arrive in Iraq uh, after war was was uh, broke out. I was in the invasion. I was in the first company of Marines into Baghdad in, in 2003 as a, as a grunt, as the lowest officer, a second lieutenant, an infantry platoon commander. And um, I had a platoon of young Marines who were some of the best Americans I've ever met. And what was the experience like, that first experience? I know you had four tours of duty there. What was what was that first thrust like when you guys uh, you went from Kuwait to Baghdad? Well, gosh, I mean, there's so much to say about it. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience. I didn't expect to be invading a sovereign country as a 23 year old, and I certainly didn't expect to have the responsibility of keeping 36 young Americans alive when an awful lot of people were trying to kill us. Uh, but I was proud to be there. I was uncertain about the war. The whole justification for it seemed pretty shaky at best. And a lot of the Marines were skeptical, too. And sometimes they would say, you know, Jesus, what are we doing here? Um, But I would always just get back to the fact that we were there to serve the country. And we were there so that nobody had to go in our place. And we had to do a good job to keep each other alive. And I think one of the interesting things about that experience was being someone who had had gone to Harvard. People were skeptical of me. The Marines were skeptical. They weren't sure that I they they weren't sure that they could trust me because they figured, oh, this is probably some book smart kid who has no practical experience and might get us killed. I worked hard to earn their trust, but I don't think it really changed until our first firefight. You didn't speak to them in Latin or anything. I I, I, I laid off that. Good. No. <laughs> but but a little bit uh, into the invasion outside of Nazaria, we got into our first uh, firefight. And, um, you know, and I guess they thought I did a good job. And that night, that very night, I overheard a Marine in my platoon talking to another Marine in the company, to a guy in another platoon. He said, you know, my platoon commander went to Harvard. Where did yours go? So in that instant, he was proud of the fact that, you know, I'd worked hard and I'd gotten myself into a good school. Uh, because, But I had to prove myself first. I had to prove that I was someone that I that, that could be trusted. And you know what? It kind of brings me back to today when I think a lot of people in today's economy uh, just feel like they're not respected for the jobs they do because they don't have a piece of paper that says Harvard or Yale or Princeton or whatever on their on their wall. You know, I never asked a Marine in my platoon to do a job because of the degree he had. Or probably whether they were a Republican or a Democrat. Absolutely not. So let me ask you this. You guys went in. The premise was that there were weapons of mass destruction in uh, in Iraq. You probably were equipped to deal with gas and other... We wore chemical suits. We thought we were going to get gassed. One of the first reports we had coming over the border was that a bunch of Marines had been killed by, by nerve agent. Obviously, it proved uh, a false report. Uh, but yes, I mean, all the intelligence that we were told, that we were given, uh, you know, this wasn't just some intelligence sham uh, given to the American people and they told us the truth. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, all these things they told us were that uh, that we'd be hit with chemical weapons. We had to practice uh, injecting ourselves with uh, you know with atropine to counter the nerve agent. I mean, it was a it was a frightening situation. And uh, the other thing that 
was said at the time, I think, by Vice President Cheney, is that you would be greeted as liberators. Um, w- how were you greeted? Uh, you, you mentioned the firefight, but uh, along the way, how were you greeted? We were greeted as liberators. Mm-hmm. It's one of the very few things that the vice president uh, was, was, was right about. Uh, and that's one of the strange things, is that, uh, you know, the invasion of Iraq was ill-conceived. It was mismanaged. Uh, I don't think anyone looks back on it now and says it was a good idea. But there was this moment, there was this moment in 2003 when we came in and liberated the Iraqi people from Saddam. Before everything went downhill, before we had no plan for the occupation, um, before we didn't do a good job of dealing with the insurgency, all these things we screwed up. There was this moment when the Iraqi people had a taste of freedom. And I have never seen a more hopeful, optimistic, and excited place on earth than Iraq 2003. But we couldn't make it last. A lot of, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. One of the mistakes that people suggest was made was the uh, disbanding of uh, the Ba'athist army, the uh, that uh, of Saddam Hussein, because it, the thought was it could have been converted uh, to better purposes. Uh, was that your sense? Well, I mean, it was one of many disastrous decisions. Uh, and, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes about that time in Iraq is from Ambassador Barbara Bodine, who's got this amazing history. She's a wonderful public servant. And she said, uh, you know, we knew that there were 500 ways to do this wrong and one way to do it right. But we didn't expect to try all 500. <laughs> and this was one of the major mistakes that was made. Now, let me tell you, uh, let me let me be honest. Uh, I was a 23, 24-something-year-old uh, second lieutenant. I remember when they first told us that we ought to pay the Iraqi army, and my initial reaction was, why the hell would we pay these guys? We just beat them. I mean, mm-hmm. isn't that the way that this is supposed to work? Um, but it didn't take long to figure out, for us on the ground, that they needed jobs. It's like Bill Clinton. You know, it's the economy, stupid. Mm-hmm. If you're just going to put hundreds of thousands of uh, Iraqi men out of work, what are they going to do? And, and, and so... For those of us who were really on the ground, who were who were talking to these soldiers, who were, uh, you know, the, these guys who'd been fighting us a week before, and now we we're actually sharing stories about what our common military experience was, it became pretty obvious quite quickly that we ought to pay them. And it was these bureaucrats in, in Baghdad that President Bush had sent over with no qualifications whatsoever to run an occupation or a country who were screwing things up. And was there a point you mentioned the, the, the gas masks and... and, and- uh, all the precautions that you took. Was there a point when you said to yourself as a young second lieutenant, holy smokes, that was not true? Yes, and it was disillusioning because you want to be able to trust your leaders. You want to be able to trust. Now, now you might say, well, just it was wrong intelligence or whatever, but, but at the end of the day, you want to believe in your mission. You want to believe in what you're trying to do. And don't think the Marines weren't asking me you know, even the more conservative guys and whatnot were saying, you know, what the hell are we doing here, sir? What's going on? And it's hard to be in a leader to be a leader in that position where you're not making the decision to invade, but you are asking young Americans to risk their lives. You uh, you you were there over several periods of time. By the time you got back uh, on your second tour of duty, things had deteriorated. Um, let me ask you a general question, and then I want to ask you about the battle that you were involved in that was uh, particularly uh, uh, ferocious and meaningful. 
Um, is it hubris to believe that that we can enforce democracy um, in places where democracy has never flourished? I mean, I, I'm a big believer in democracy, but you know, tribalism and sectarian differences uh, that have taken root over centuries and millennia uh, are powerful, powerful things, as we've seen. Uh, there right. were our ambitions greater than our ability to deliver. Well, in a sense, obviously so, uh, because it hasn't worked. But um, but let me say, let me answer your question. I think it is hubris to say that we're going to go impose our system of government on whoever we like. But it is not it is not wrong to think that Iraqi people don't want freedom and liberty and self determination as well. I think those are universal human values. And in some ways, I appreciate them much more as an American, having lived for years in a country where people don't have freedom, where they don't believe that they can influence their government. Uh, one, of the, one of the strange things about Iraq in 2003 is, is, is people just didn't believe that they could actually uh, have a fair election and, and make a difference in, in their world because they were just so uh, frightened by, by Saddam and his dictatorship. And when we gave them that taste of freedom, you saw that, that those values are universal. And, uh, and that's something that I won't forget. So I don't think we should go around the world imposing our system of government or risking American lives to change everything. But I do think that freedom, liberty, equality, these are universal human values. And just because someone grows up in Iraq doesn't mean that he or she doesn't want them to. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Congressman Seth Moulton. I mentioned that you were involved in a, uh, in, in a uh, kind of momentous battle when you returned uh, against the uh, Mahdi militia. Uh, to talk about that. Well, I came back to Iraq in 2004, and when I had left, things were actually going pretty well. In fact, the last thing that I did in Iraq in 2003 after the invasion, was co-host a TV show. It was called Molten and Muhammad. Yeah. And it was sort of like a news talk show. We were trying to teach the Iraqis freedom of the press and why freedom of the press and an independent press is important to a democracy. And so Muhammad and I would go around and, and do investigative journalism on things like the electricity situation. All the Iraqis were frustrated that they didn't have electricity. We tried to get to the bottom of it and said, you know, this may be what the government's telling you, but this is the truth. And we talked to the people who were at the power plants and at the distribution centers. And, and the Iraqi people loved this. I mean, look, our pr production standards were pathetic. But the yeah, Iraqi, yeah. I didn't know how to host a TV show. I just copied what I saw back home. But, but the Iraqi people loved it because they'd never seen this before. So it was this heady, optimistic time when, when we felt like we, we, we probably shouldn't have invaded. In fact, other lieutenants and I took bets before we, uh, when we were down in Kuwait before we invaded. And my money was on not invading because I said, this is crazy. We're not, Bush isn't actually going to do this. But he did it. We invaded. And then we just said, look, Saddam is gone. Let's try to give the Iraqi people uh, a, a, a choice. Let's try to give Iraqi people freedom and democracy like we have. So then I returned in 2004, 
and was shocked to see how bad things had gotten, how much the insurgency had uh, taken over. And within the first few days, I found myself in far worse combat than I'd seen throughout the entire invasion. And I had a platoon in the cemetery in Najaf, uh, which is an above-ground cemetery by and large. I had some underground mausoleums, but uh, but many of the gra- most of the graves are you have to actually walk over them. So the, so the walk five feet in any one direction, you're going up and down uh, over these over these graves. Sometimes falling into them, it was a um, very difficult place to be in combat, and it was brutal. Uh, very very close range, throwing grenades back and forth, and um, and it was. Uh, it, it was it was tough and it was hard to keep the uh, the Marines alive. It was also extremely hot, about 130 did you lose, degrees. Ma- did you lose people? Yeah, we lost a, a few in my company, uh, several wounded in my platoon, and 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 those are life changing events. Uh, there was a um, there was a particularly difficult time when I um, was on the I guess the second day and it had been brutally hot. I was up all night, barely slept at all. And uh, we marched into the cemetery in, in, in scorching, scorching heat, 120, 130 degrees, uh, no water, no food, low on ammunition. And at one point, we, we stopped our advance. And for, for perhaps the first time, I took a break. And I, I, I sat down for a few minutes behind a tombstone and opened my flak vest a little bit so that I could um, get a little bit of uh, uh, fresh air. And... Um, and then I said, okay, I got to go back to work. And the first thing I did is I went up and checked the lines. And when I did, I found a Marine dead. And he'd been shot in the neck. And the saddest thing about it is that because all these tombstones are, 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 are above ground, they're sticking up, the Marine just 10 feet to his right and the other Marine 10 feet to his left, you couldn't see him. And so he died alone. He died alone while I was taking a break. And that's something that I've always lived with. And I think it's part of why, you know, some people say I work too hard or whatever. But, um, you know, that's my experience with taking a break is that some young 18-year-old kid died when I might have been there to at least hold his hand. And so it's an example of why being did in you, a situation. Did you know this young man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you been in touch with his family? You know, he was in the adjacent platoon to mine, so mm-hmm. I've let um, them, them, you know, mm-hmm. have that conversation. But, um, but I knew him. We were in a tight company, and um, and I've always, I obviously felt very guilty about it. And uh, there was nothing I could do in a practical sense. But, um, but these are life changing experiences. You were twenty four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and was that the first uh, sort of? Direct confrontation? No, we'd seen stuff during the invasion. I mean, I had a, uh, another Marine who was terribly, terribly wounded in the in the invasion. They thought he would die, but he, after twenty three hours of surgery and losing parts of different organs, he he made it through. So, I mean, I you know I'd seen a few things, but but that was just one story I share about how um, you go through an experience like that and it affects the rest of your life. And you think about that, and you think about you know sometimes I think when I just feel like I'm having a lazy day. Sometimes that that experience will come back to me, and I say, you know, Seth, work a little harder. Now you you say that, but you know when you when one reads up on you as uh, as I did to prepare for this conversation, 
what you hear even before you entered the military was you you were pretty much of a nose to the grindstone guy that that your classmates and others remember you as someone who was very disciplined felt people had to meet their responsibilities who drove yourself very hard so that's partly who you are sure i think that's i think that's fair my kindergarten teacher apparently told my mother that uh you know seth has very high standards for himself the problem is he has those same standards for (laughs) the other kids as well um but listen i'm far from perfect i've gotten myself into a fair bit of trouble over the years uh well including in the military i mean you well, you were sort of you were a bit of a cowboy then, uh, and you 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 became to the attention of David Petraeus, who was the. Who, you know, a general called me that once. He uh, he called me in and um, chewed my ass, as we say, for a, for a few minutes, and he said, "You know, Molten, you're a cowboy. You're a goddamn cowboy." And I walked out and I looked at uh, my friend Alex, who was my teammate, and I said, "I think I just got a compliment." But not everybody looks at it that way. Uh, you know, I think the military is a very Petraeus did, though. Petraeus kind of embraced you. That's right. I mean, he's been a maverick, too, and he's been someone who realizes that a lot of times uh, the military bureaucracy is its own worst enemy, and so you have to go outside of it. And he uh, had me come and work for him as a second lieutenant, working directly for a three-star general, and then as a captain. How did that sit with everybody in between? Not very well. Not very well. Some people appreciated it and said, "Hey, you know, let's let's work with this guy Molden because he's got a direct line to the general." And I have some great friends from that experience who, uh, like the uh, a captain of a special forces team that we worked with and lived with, who got a lot done because we were great partners and we had a and we had a direct connection to Petraeus. But then there were a lot of other people who resented it. And you know, I say I see the same thing in Congress today because Congress, especially in the Democratic Caucus, is this very seniority-based, hierarchical organization that uh, a lot of times promotes people just because they've been around for a long time, not because they're necessarily doing a good job. And yeah, it's called the seniority system. It's a seniority system, right? And um, and you know, I came to 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 Congress and I said, look. I, I want to be as humble as I can possibly be. I, I I would go around to everybody and ask them for advice, and I and I still do. Uh, I talk to colleagues all the time and say, "What can I be doing better?" But I also recognize that I have a responsibility to serve the country uh, that comes before any seniority system, and I'm not just going to sit quietly uh, while things are screwed up. And if Congress isn't doing a good job and serving the people of my district yeah. or the country well, then then I'm going to try to change it. And I want to get to that. Uh but I, I don't want to – I just – before we wrap up uh, on Iraq, a, a couple of things. Petraeus obviously is a, widely recognized as a kind of uh, brilliant strategist and uh, student uh, of military history. Um, the uh, that, that let, let's, let's certify that. Were you um, surprised, shocked? Uh, about how it all ended for him completely in shocked. public service. Completely shocked. And, and I hope it's do not Do you still keep end. in touch with him? I do. Mm-hmm. I do, because uh, he's not only a great military leader, he's the best boss I've ever had. And uh, and that's because we looked at to him as a leader, and he took care of us. He took care of me as a, as a, as a lowly lieutenant, even though he was in charge of you know, over 100,000 troops in this war. But, um, but I worked for him, and he took care of me and my team. And 
when when that happened, um, when it was revealed that he was, that he was having this affair, I mean, we were everybody who worked for him. We we got in touch with each other, and um, and we were all completely completely shocked. No one no one expected that. But seeing him go through this and deal with it is a reminder that nobody's perfect. God knows I'm not perfect, and I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, and the real test of leadership is to be able to get through that. You know, being a leader is not doing the right thing when it's convenient or easy or everybody else is doing it. Uh, just like having courage is not having no fear. It's dealing with your fear. And Well, in this case, it's dealing with a profound mistake, not just a profound the affair, mistake. but, Prof- but and, sharing and, and, and mistake, classified information a mistake to, to, to his, his uh, mistress and biographer. Who had a clearance and who was a, a military officer herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in some ways that piece is overplayed, but... There's no question. It's a mistake. He's owned. He's owned it. Uh, he's mm-hmm. taken responsibility for it, and that's a tough thing as a leader. You know what I was always most scared of as a platoon commander was not that Marines in my platoon would get killed per se, but that I would make a mistake that led to Marines in my platoon getting killed. That'd be the hardest thing to live with, and. And in the same way, I think that for um, Petraeus, the stakes aren't quite as high as having someone killed, but um, but he has to live with this mistake. And everybody who looks to him, including myself, is one of the people who looks up to him as a leader, uh, now has that coloring the experience. But I'll tell you, when I look at General Petraeus today, I regret that he made that mistake too, but I still have tremendous respect for him as a leader. Mm-hmm. And I have respect for the fact that He's not perfect. None of us are. Um, but he owned responsibility for the mistake. He's worked hard to make up for it. And I hope he'll serve the country again. Oh, well, so, uh, last thing on Iraq. The, um, there's a, there's a, you hear a lot that, the, that it was a dreadful mistake to remove all the troops from Iraq. And if we had left a residual force there, that, um, that ISIS would not have been able to take root uh, in Iraq. Having spent as much time as you did there, um, what is your feeling about that? That's probably true, but it's not the main point. The main point is that we needed to have political support for rebuilding the Iraqi government. And when General Petraeus political was Political support within Iraq. Correct. So mm-hmm. General Petraeus worked so closely with Ambassador Crocker, the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador at the time. And, and they understood that any military strategy is really just there to support a political strategy. And during the surge, when they worked so closely together, I think we knew that. And, and a political I, strategy involved reconciliation between the different uh, – between the Kurds, the right. Shia – and the Sunni. And, it, and it, look, it involved the same kind of mentorship and support to the Iraqi government as we were providing to the Iraqi troops because they needed it, because they hadn't had a democracy before, because there are all these tribal pressures and other things making it difficult for them to have a, a, a democratic uh, representative government um, like the Iraqi people, I think, actually wanted. Um, and, and, and the polling supports that. So the problem with pulling out of Iraq wasn't just that we pulled the troops back, because actually militarily we were in a pretty good situation after the surge. The problem is that we knew they needed this political support. We built the largest U.S. embassy in the world in Baghdad, and then we left it half full. We pulled out these advisors from the ministry, the people who were keeping the prime minister in check. And look, I wish we had 
and a, a bunch of Iraqi politicians who didn't need that kind of guidance and support, but the reality is that they needed it. And so rather than just pulling out the troops at a time when we knew they needed those that political support, we should have had a robust State Department effort, and we didn't. Now there's been this huge effort to push ISIS back, and it's been uh, successful to uh, a great degree. But is the political... Is the political foundation there no. f- for sustained security in Iraq? No, and this is the key question because I'm afraid we're about to make the exact same mistake and that three or four years from now we'll see ISIS 2.0 come in, the next terrorist group, just like ISIS followed al-Qaeda. ISIS was in many ways al-Qaeda 2.0. And we're going to be back in the same place where we're sending young Americans back to refight the same battles that guys like I helped win a decade ago. And so the point is not that we need more and more military commitment to Iraq, but that we've got to provide political support. It's why the State Department is so important. I may be a a Marine Corps veteran, an infantry officer, but you won't find a bigger advocate for the State Department uh, than me. We need to have diplomatic support around the globe. And you know what? That It saves American lives. Because if we get the politics right in Iraq and help them stand up a government that can be self-sufficient, that's the only way we really go. When we talk about politics, though, we are talking about sectarian differences. Oh, it's complicated. Iran now is playing such a huge role in Iraq that the notion of reconciliation between Shia and Sunni uh, becomes that much more difficult. It becomes more difficult. But look, frankly, Iran is doing what we should be doing. You know, they're providing the kind of political support, although in their case it's pretty insidious because I think they want to see the Iraqi government fail. But they're providing that kind of political support that, that we knew we needed to provide, that we built this embassy to, uh, to enable. And so this is why when President Trump is cutting the State Department by 30 percent and yet sending thousands of troops into Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, he's getting it exactly wrong. He's getting it exactly wrong. We shouldn't be sending more troops. We should be sending more diplomats. We should be sending these State Department officials to help the Iraqis. General Mattis himself famously said that if you cut back on diplomats and give me more money because we're going to have to fight more wars. Yeah, he he said he needed to buy more ammunition. That's Mm -hmm. right. And what about uh, North Korea? While we're while we're here, just throw that one in there. Yeah. A little easy problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the last few minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, as you watch this unfold, and as we speak, the uh, North Koreans just fired another missile over Japan. Um, where is this going? You sit I, on the Armed Services Committee. Where is it going? I don't know, but it's deadly serious, and we have a commander in chief who's wild and erratic and irresponsible has had a lot of bluster, but I think ultimately all that bluster is a blunder and it could get us into some real deep trouble. Uh, This is a very difficult situation because there's no military solution, and any military commander will tell you that, that if we try to take out North Korea's missiles, they're going to launch an artillery barrage on the south that will kill hundreds of thousands of South Koreans and tens of thousands of Americans who are living in and around Seoul. That's not acceptable. So it's another place where what we, what we should have is a much stronger diplomatic effort than military effort. We have to keep up the military pressure. Sure, of course we do. And we've got to make sure our defenses are strong. But at the end of the day, what resolves this crisis is, is diplomatic pressure. Is the, dip, is the diplomatic pressure solely on North Korea? Because now the Russians seem to be uh, 
giving more assistance to the North Koreans, even as the Chinese are pulling back a little? Well, it's a great example of how Russia is our enemy, not our friend. Uh, and it's why we should uh, be pressuring Russia, not allowing them to hack our elections, frankly. But this is why having a leader in the Oval Office who is respected by people around the globe, who's not the laughing stock of dictators in Russia or China or wherever else, but is someone who can actually be be trusted, both when it means standing up to our enemies and also standing by our allies. We're and the problem a, with— Well, let me, let me sure. just—because i, I got to do a little business here. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Congressman Seth Moulton. I interrupted you before the break, so finish, finish your point. Well, I was just saying that it's a problem having a president in the Oval Office who's fundamentally not trusted, not trusted by our allies to stand by, uh, by them, and not trusted by our enemies. Because, as he infamously said, uh, I'm sending an armada to North Korea. It turns out it's headed in the opposite direction. I mean, this is fundamentally a man who can't speak the truth and therefore someone who uh, can't keep promises. Just to pick up your narrative, you, went, you came back, you, you returned to Harvard, added a few more degrees to your, uh, to your resume, and not to in any way denigrate the, 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 the education that went along with it. Um, and then you decided to run for Congress, and you improbably upended a— uh, uh, a long-term incumbent. Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that. I, I, I did. I you went lost to business once. school. Mm-hmm. No, no, I didn't lose. But uh, I, I went to business school, and then, like every aspiring Massachusetts politician, I took a job in Dallas, Texas. So, uh, going into politics is not what I plan to do. And I have a lot of respect for people in politics, respect for what you do, David, but it just wasn't interesting to me. I had never studied in school or worked on a campaign or anything like that. But when I was down in Dallas, I got a phone call from a woman named Emily, Emily Cherniak, mm-hmm. who's, a, who's a City Year alumna. She started an organization called New Politics, and she's trying to recruit service veterans to run for office at a time when we've never had fewer veterans in Congress in our nation's history. So she called me when I was down in Texas, and she said, you ought to run for Congress. And I said, "That's what are you talking about? I'm living in Texas. It's crazy. She says, no, you should come back to your home district in Massachusetts and, and, and think about running. Um, well, I said no. I said no a few times. Uh, but she's a very persistent lady. And she got me to give it a shot. She initially called me in 2012. That may be what you're remembering. Uh, I didn't get into the race then. Yes, that was what I was remembering. Yeah, so uh, I, did, I, didn't, I decided not to run then. But, um, but I kept listening to what she said, and I explored the possibility and decided to run in 2014, fundamentally just because I believe that, you know, if people aren't willing to challenge the establishment, things are never going to get better. And I thought back to a time in 2004 in the middle of Iraq when a young Marine in my platoon said, you know, sir, you ought to run for Congress someday so that this shit doesn't happen again. And, you know, he didn't convince me then. Because as I said, I went back, went to business school, took a job in Texas. Um, But maybe in the long run, he did convince me because I thought back to that conversation. I thought back to what Corporal Castro said to me. And and ultimately, I decided to run. And I I ran against an incumbent who I just thought wasn't doing a great job. He'd been there for 18 years, had only passed one bill in 18 years. And I was able to beat him in a tough primary. Actually, he was the only Democrat in the country to beat an incumbent in the House primary that year in 2014. He he had a few ethical 
issues that he'd been reelected since then. He did have some, but I never ran on those. Literally, never brought it up once during the campaign. Um, but it was a tough district, actually. It's Massachusetts, but our Republican governor won the district by 13 points. It was on uh, the front line list, so a top targeted district by the Republicans. And the polling just before the primary showed that if the incumbent had beat me in the primary, if he'd beaten me in the primary, he would have lost to to uh, the Republican in the general election. So after I won the primary, it was a tough general election fight as well. Uh, but I ultimately prevailed, and I'm Proud to represent the people of Massachusetts now in Congress. Getting back to what you started raising before, the sort of maverick role that you've chosen for yourself in various iterations in your life, uh, you're now viewed as one of the point people in a sort of generational challenge to the Democratic leadership of the House. Uh, Talk about that. Well, look, let me start by saying that I'm not trying to be a maverick for the sake of being a maverick. I'm just trying to do what's right. And when I stuck my neck out in in Iraq and disagreed with some of my fellow officers and uh, told generals when I think thought things were screwed up and not going well, even though that wasn't the party line, I I was just doing what I thought was right. And when I, you know, broke with tradition from my classmates at Harvard and joined the military, I wasn't trying to prove anything really. I thought I was just trying to do what was right. I mean, maybe there's part of me that was trying to prove that I was up to it to myself. But I was just trying to do what was right. And, you know, in the House right now, uh, I think it's time for new leadership. And in fact, I'm, I'm concerned that if we don't get some new leadership, it's going to be hard for Democrats to start winning again. Uh, I mean, the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. Let, me ask, you, let me ask you a question about that, um, because um, I guess what comes to mind is what would – let's say you – and I know you're not suggesting you want, you will be the leader of No, in the, fact, I promised that I wouldn't run because I yeah. wanted people to know that I wasn't doing this to advance okay. my own career. But let's just theoretically say you were. Uh, what would you be doing as leader that you don't feel that uh, Nancy Pelosi is doing as leader? And I tell you this with some bias because I worked with her when I was in the White House and I found her to be the most effective person up there in in, in that when she told you something was going to happen, it happened. And if she told you it couldn't, it wasn't going to happen, she generally was right. And so, you know, I thought her, I thought she was a very effective leader. But tell me what you, uh, what you would be doing now that would make the Democratic Party a, 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 a more effective party. Well, first of all, I agree with you that she has been a very effective leader. And most people say that uh, Obamacare would not have been passed without her I leadership. I would be one of them, and I was there. Right. I wasn't, but I believe you. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, look, she's the first woman to become Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. I mean, a truly historic politician. So this is nothing personal against Nancy Pelosi. I have tremendous respect for her. I mean, look, she knows a lot more about politics than I do. I'm very new to this whole thing. Um but there's a time and a place for everything, and she's also been a very effective opposition figure for the Republicans. A lot of that isn't isn't entirely fair either. The way she's been painted by the Republicans, in fact, it's uh, it's in some ways it's just totally immoral. It's wrong, um, but nonetheless, it's been effective. And Democrats need to start winning again. 
we need to start winning again uh, to preserve these values that are inherent to what makes us who we are as Americans. We need to preserve uh, the access to health care that President Obama enabled. We need to preserve uh, the right to marry whoever you love. We need to make sure uh, that freedom and equality are extended to all in America. And I know that we can't count on our Republican friends uh, to uphold those promises. And we certainly can't count on this administration. So yeah. if we want to take back the House of Representatives to put a check on on Trump, I think we need new leadership. And I think it's time for a new generation of leadership in the Democratic Party. You um, you mentioned values and the values that you want to preserve. She and Senator Schumer apparently just cut a deal with the president. We'll see if it stands up uh, and actually gets affirmed by the Congress uh, to codify DACA and protect those young immigrants. Isn't that a measure of effectiveness as well, if that comes to pass? I mean, aren't those, at the end of the day, isn't it about winning progress and not just about elections? Well, we've got to do whatever we can to save these kids um, who came here through no fault of their own and are Americans just like the rest of us. They serve in the military, they go to school, they contribute to our economy. I mean, just in Massachusetts, we will suffer a massive millions and millions of dollars of economic losses. Yeah, so I'm with you. Stipulate that, but isn't it to her credit if that, if that comes to pass? So are you saying that no other leader could have done it either? I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm asking you. No, I'd say uh, I give her a lot. Of, I give her a lot of credit for doing that. It's credit that's well deserved. But she would be in a much better negotiating position if Democrats controlled the House of Representatives uh, than uh, than we are in now. And and that's why I think it's so important that uh, that we have a, a leadership change so that we can start winning again. So your basic uh, point is that she's become a partly because of decades of demonization yeah, by the- it's not fair i mean david it's not fair to her it's not right but um but you know there's this yearning i think for uh for a new generation of, of democrats to step up and say uh, we need to get back in touch with middle america who we've lost we need to make sure that we are a party uh that truly understands what it means to be hurting in this new economy uh, to be out of work, to be to be seeing your jobs taken over not by immigrants but by by robots being automated out of existence. And um, what do we know, do about that? By the way, now that you're on that point, it's a big concern. Oh, it's a of huge mine. problem. I mean, we lose problem. four or five jobs to not to China or to Mexico, but to robots, right. computers, artificial intelligence is coming uh, very fast. Uh, well, well, look, let's be honest. Let me just say on this on this leadership thing that our leadership got up before our, uh, the caucus and said, you know, what we need to do to start winning again is to go back to 2006, 2007 when we were in control. And I said, look, th- it's a different place. It's a different world. Uh, people were just getting used to an iPhone back then. We need to face the economic problems of today and of the future. And we need to have a plan to deal with automation. And it's got to be a plan that says to everybody in America, no matter where you live, not just if you live in a good city and a big city rather on the on the on the coast that's doing well in this in this uh, in this new economy um, but if you live in a small town in rural America we want you to be a part of the economy of the future as well and this is going to be hard uh, there are a few things we need to do we need to make some serious reforms in education because education is no longer something that you can just get in high school or college and then be set for the rest of your life 
The economy's changing too quickly. People need to be able to be retrained for jobs. Yeah, nor is a, co- a college education necessarily That's the only route point. to a... Exactly. So I have an apprenticeship bill um, that I'm working on in Congress to try to uh, dramatically expand apprenticeships. Uh, because ultimately, uh, we need people to... To, to know that they will be respected and admired uh, for jobs that don't require a college degree. Not everybody wants to get a college degree. And, and we, need, we need those folks as part of our economy as well. I think Democrats are right to say that uh, you know, everybody should have a, 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 an opportunity to get a college education. If you can't pay for it, you'll get it for free. I support that. But we also need to say that if you want to get an apprenticeship or you want to go to vocational school, that we will provide that opportunity for you. And not only that, but we'll respect you for your job when you get out. Yeah. And there's been some innovative work done at community colleges around the country that have sort of made themselves training outlets for uh, future-oriented jobs. Listening to you speak and looking at your travel schedule raises the question as to whether uh, you are pondering potentially running for president yourself. <laughs> well, I'm 38 years old. I'm, I'm very new to politics. Yeah, but you're remedying that thing every day. You're probably getting older. So, <laughs> I do get older every day, I guess. It's something yeah. I can't stop, but right. um, as much as I might regret it. Uh, look, no, I'm traveling the country because I'm supporting these candidates for 2018. And the I'm going to ask you about that, but are you saying that that's not something that you would do in 2020, or are you reserving judgment on that? No, I'm not planning to run for president, but, uh, but in 2018... That's where my focus is. We've got to win back the House of Representatives. And I have 12 candidates I've already endorsed. I'm looking to endorse more. Uh, They're all veterans. That's kind of my little niche in Mm -hmm. all of this. And I think veterans are uniquely qualified to win some of these swing districts for Democrats that are tough, uh, where we need people, we need candidates who voters will look at and say, you know, I may be an independent. I may have felt that the, the Democratic Party has left me behind. But this is, a, this is a leader I can trust. I don't care if she's a Democrat or a Republican. This is a leader that I can trust. And, and those are the kinds of candidates that, um, that I'm supporting traveling around the country right now. I can't let you get away with the I'm not planning to run for president because that's like the classic sort of way station for people who are maybe pondering it. And the reason it comes up is you're speaking, for example, at the steak fry, uh, the classic Harkin, Tom Harkin started the steak fry in Iowa to support uh, Democrats. I I actually remember in the fall of 2006 when Barack Obama went to speak at that steak fry and it was, uh, it, it had great symbolic meaning to people that he was showing up there. Now, maybe that you just like a good steak, I do love a good steak, but well, look, you know, they're I'm, very good there. I, I having been there, I, I uh, encourage you to uh, to eat one of them. But um, uh, clearly, you're 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 going there with your eyes wide open, knowing what people are going to say. Look, I'm flattered by the question, and I appreciate the encouragement that a lot of people have given me. But the reality is that I am squarely focused on 2018. But if you're going to win in 2018, if we're going to take back the House in 2018, uh, it means you have to travel and support candidates. And it means you have to try to get people to understand what it means to have a new generation of leadership in the party. And if you look at the three speakers at the Iowa Steak Fry, they're myself, Tim Ryan, 
both of us led the charge uh, for, for, for changes in House leadership. And then Sherry Bustos, who's this rising star yes, in the Democratic Party. And she's, Western Illinois. That's right. And she's, and she's someone who has proven that she can win elections as a Democrat in a Trump district. Mm-hmm. So that's what this is about. It's about Democrats saying that, you know, if we're going to start winning again, we need to start leading again. And I think that means a new generation of leadership. Let me irritate you with one last question on this, and then we'll move on. Uh, you mentioned that you're 38 years old. Um, you've been in Congress just for a few years. Uh, do you think that you're prepared to offer yourself for the most significant office on the planet? I've honestly not thought about that question, David, which maybe gives you a, a view to um, to where my, my head is right now in terms of my focus being 2018, not 2020. I think I'm a hell of a lot more prepared than the current occupant of that office. Uh, but, you know, um, but I'm not running for president. That's not my that's not my focus right now. I hope to support someone who runs for president who understands what it means to lead, who understands what it means to put the country first. Uh, who who's understood, uh, you know, I think that um, maybe it'd be a good idea to have a veteran to run for president, uh, given the stakes uh, with what's going on uh, uh, overseas and, and frankly at home right now as well. You know, someone who's going to do the right thing regardless of the political pressures or the party pressures. But that's just the kind of person that I'm trying to be in Congress, not because I'm trying to run for president, but just because I think it's the right thing to do. All right. We'll let others mull over the conversation and make their judgments as to what they think is rattling around in your head on this, and let, let's move on to something else. You know, I've spoken with, uh, with guests here before about the loss of the sense of comedy with a T that came along with the sort of greatest generation uh, when there was, in fact, universal service and people across the country, uh, you know, from rural and urban and and varied classes and, you know, to some degree races, but that was obviously something different back in the day. But people felt uh, fought shoulder to shoulder together. And so they're, and then they may be of different political persuasions or they may have been, but they did have that in common. So you didn't see this sort of uh, assertion that people were less of an American, even if they disagreed with you. There wasn't the sort of demonization that you see in politics today. Do you think that this new generation of veterans from these two wars uh, present an opportunity to regain some sense of uh, of shared mission? I do. You know, I don't think it uh, is a litmus test that you have to be a veteran to run for Congress. But I do think it should be a litmus test that you've got to be willing to put your country first. That you've got to be willing to put your country ahead of your personal politics, your your party's politics. You've got to do the right thing for America, and that's what I see in these veterans. And you know, it's quite something when you know someone who's willing to put his or her life on the line for you. And one of my closest friends in the Marines is was my teammate when I worked for General Petraeus. Her name is Anne, and she's an extraordinary uh, woman who was an extraordinary Marine. Uh, she put her life on the line for me, and I put my life on the line for her. Turns out she's a Republican, but there are a few people I trust more in the world than Anne, even though we have real disagreements on some policy things, although I think we actually probably find we have more in common than most people would well, that, expect. That, ra- that raises the question, though, do you find in this very, very polarized uh, world in which you operate there in Congress— 
Do you have a greater ability to to work across the aisle with fellow veterans on yes. the other side? Yes. I mean, look, there are always exceptions to the rule, but um, but I do. I mean, oftentimes veterans are the first people I will go to when I'm looking for a Republican colleague or a, a sponsor. I started a caucus called the Warrior Caucus uh, with a Republican from Oklahoma. And he's a very conservative Republican. He's not even a moderate Republican. He's someone that I disagree strongly with on, on very important issues, uh, issues that go right to, to the core of, of who I am and who I think we should be as Americans. And yet we're able to find ground on issues where we agree, like on national security. And so there are important issues that I will never work with him on, um, but that doesn't prevent me from finding common ground where we can and doing the right thing for the country together when we can, and getting things done that I wouldn't be able to do if I didn't have his partnership on, especially when Republicans are in control of the House. And the thing that we came together around is the fact that we both served in the war, and that we had that common understanding, that common experience. That's fundamentally what brought us together and gave us mutual respect for each other, even if we don't always agree. And you see... uh on both sides, a proliferation of candidates who have served? There are, there are more veterans running, but, but right now, in this time, uh, it seems like an awful lot more are Democrats because they see what peril the country is in with the person we have in the White House. Uh, incidentally, someone who got five deferments so he could dodge the draft and avoid serving in Vietnam himself. So I don't think that at the end of the day, Donald Trump may talk a big game, but he doesn't really respect or understand what it means to put your life on the line for the country. But these veterans who are stepping up to run, to help take back the House, to provide some balance, to provide a check on the president in Washington, uh, these Democratic veterans, they know that. They know what's at stake here, and that's why they're willing to run. We shouldn't leave without noting the fact that um, as committed as you are, clearly— to what you're doing, uh, you got an important date coming up in the next few days. Uh, and Literally a week from right now, I think that my wedding will be well in a half, a half hour from now, a week from today. So it's very exciting. Yeah. Well, the I just want, is on. You, you'll find that that is um, that is a sustaining thing, and maybe that as important as everything else is a transcendent uh, thing in your life. That's what I, that's what I wish for you. I wish you, you all the best. Thank you. Congressman Seth Moulton, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.